We are excited about today and we want to welcome Grace Point in Northwood. They're joining us this morning. We're glad you're with us too. And we are beginning a brand new series, Made for More. And actually, there's two series that we're looking at as we launch our Tiffin Church. And then we'll have a key series for the launch. And so that's all happening. It's a key time in the history of our church. Uh, we want you to please be praying. Things are looking good in Tiffin and... Uh, Again, we're expanding from two campuses operating now to three, and we, we just want to, uh, you to keep praying about that. We're still kind of sweating this inspection thing, so hope that that goes well, and that's going to determine a lot of stuff. A month from now, four weeks from now, we would like to be doing Celebrate Grace and also be introducing that next key series called um, All In, All Out. But, uh, but all that depends on this inspection that we hope will happen this week. It didn't happen last Tuesday, like I said that it might. So we're trying to figure all this out. So please keep praying. Made for more is what we're talking about. We've actually come up with a, a new motto for our church, original as far as we know. And so, and we want everybody to get this. We tried to simplify. We tried for it to be descriptive of the Christian life. And we want everybody to know this. So there's going to be a test maybe next week or, or the week after. But yeah, we'll be testing you on this. So are you ready? Because you don't sound like you're completely dialed in. All right. That's what I'm talking about. All right. Good stuff. All right. Here it is. It's, it's 4D. So here we go. Discover truth. Decide on Jesus. Demonstrate change and deploy for others. This we feel is descriptive of the Christian life. That we first of all discover truth. Well how do we know when we've discovered truth? Well, we'll know that when, when we decide on Jesus. Well how do we know that we've actually decided on Jesus? Well we know we've decided on Jesus when we demonstrate change in our life. That's the evidence. Well, then how do we know we've demonstrated change in our life? Well, ultimately, is when we deploy for others, when we do things for others, when we love others besides loving God, which is what God is telling us to do, and we serve within his church like all of us are called to do as believers, and also that we serve people outside the church by pointing them to God. So this is our motto. We, we've, we've made it simple, four Ds. Hopefully you'll be able to remember it. Discover truth, decide on Jesus, demonstrate change, deploy for others. And we're going to dive into a passage of scripture today that's one of my favorites. It's John chapter 9. It's the story of a blind man. And if you want to turn there with the, one of the Bibles in the, the rack in front of you, it's page 1070. So 1070, that's, that's where we're going to start. And basically... It's talking about discovering truth and deciding on Jesus, and that's where we're going to focus. So, John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a blind man, or a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was that he would be born blind. And Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, 
but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What I want us to know as we see this story unfold, an event in Jesus' life, I want us to see a discovering truth, and then are we seeing or are we blind to truth, and then deciding on Jesus. So discovering truth, that's how this starts. The disciples are asking Jesus a theological question. They're walking through Jerusalem. They see this man. They know that he has been blind from birth. And so he asks a, they ask Jesus a version of the why question that always accompanies suffering. Anytime there's suffering, we tend to wonder why. Why is that? How could God allow that? What's going on? But they, they're sort of leading the witness. They throw out the possibilities to Jesus. Okay, well, which is it? He, he's been blind from birth. So is that because he sinned? I, I mean, birth. Did he sin in the womb? Did, did God know he was going to sin in the future? Or did his parents sin? And so they were given a child that was blind. So, and Jesus, in his answer, he rejects the premise. He says neither, but he's blind so that works of God would be displayed. We're going we're to show what that means in just a minute as, as the story unfolds. But as we talk about that, we, we realize this. All sin produces suffering. So we, or let me flip that. Suffering, in general, is because there is sin in the world in general. So, God didn't create suffering. When God first created the world, there was no suffering, no, no sin, no death, no disease, none of that. But He created us with choice, and, and Adam and Eve chose to do their own thing, which then was rebellion against God. They disobeyed Him. And then that was what we call the fall. Sin entered into the world. And then with sin entering the world, the world became broken. Sin, disease, suffering, pain, all that came into the world as a result of sin in a general sense. But in a specific sense, suffering is not always the result of sin. Specific suffering is not always the result of a specific sin. Now, it's possible that that's true, but generally it is not true. It's just a general thing. There's suffering in the world. The world's broken. It's not the way God designed it. Sin has entered. God could have just scrubbed it all out and did it a different way, but he didn't do that because of his love for us. So we live in a broken world, but God has still given us freedom to turn, choose, and turn back to him. So that's what's happening. And the disciples wanted to discover truth from Jesus, so they're asking this question. Jesus explains the answer to them, and he teaches them and us greater truths for us to know than just the why on the suffering question that they were asking, which is still a major question people ask today. And, and that continues in verse 6. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spit and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. 
So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, This is he. And still others were saying, No, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man who's called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. And so I went away and washed, and I received sight. And they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I don't know. So we get the, the story here. We've probably heard it before that Jesus, they pass this guy. The disciples ask a theological question. This guy's not even asking for healing. Jesus then, just as he's talking about the guy, spits, makes some mud, spreads it on the guy's eyes, tells him, go to a pool of Siloam, which actually probably wasn't very close in the city of Jerusalem. And so this blind man, not even asking for anything, but Jesus tells him to do it. So he makes his way through the crowd, finds this pool, washes himself, washes the mud out of his eyes, and all of a sudden he can see. Comes back, the whole neighborhood, they all know him, they recognize him, the neighborhood's in an uproar. They're all asking, how did this happen? What's going on? They realize that, hey, this, is, this, this has got to be a God thing. And so their natural response, wow, well, this is a God thing. This must be some sort of a sign from God. We better take this guy to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees. So that's what they do next. And the the Pharisees are a a group of religious leaders who are very tuned in to the law, but what they had done through their tradition since the time the law was given, the next few hundred years, what they have done is they had added a bunch of tradition to the law to make it possible for them to keep the law. And so they made all these rules. And a lot of those rules had to do with the Sabbath. Remember, God said, hey, keep one day in seven holy, don't work, rest on one day, focus on me. It's what we do Sunday, that's what church is all about, to keep this commandment. But the Pharisees had turned that to a list of rules of what you could and couldn't do, minute, detailed on what they could and couldn't do on the Sabbath day. So verse 13, we'll continue. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind... Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man's not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, well, how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And then there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And and he said, "He, he is a prophet. And the Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been born, that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, 
He's of age. He will speak for himself. Now, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be, the, to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Then he answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You did not want to become his disciples too, do you? And, and they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing that you don't know where he's from. Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us, and they put him out. And that means they put him out of the synagogue, which excommunicated him, which was a big deal in first century social cultures. That was a, a huge deal. And, and here's the Pharisees. They keep asking, how did he do it? How did he do it? And the reason they're, they're saying how, not why, and a, a little bit who, it's all about how, because this has already happened before with Jesus, healing on the Sabbath day. They've already aligned themselves against Jesus, healing on the Sabbath day. And so now they're getting to the specifics. How did he do it? How did he do it? How did he do it? And they want to know how because they want to find some way that Jesus has violated the law on the Sabbath day. And of course, Jesus didn't violate the law on the Sabbath day, but he did violate their oral tradition that they had attached to the law. On the Sabbath day and he violated that three different ways first of all he healed on the Sabbath day weren't supposed to do that as far as the oral tradition was concerned secondly he made clay you weren't supposed to knead dough so just making a little mud and spit together oh that's working violation number two and then he applied it to his eyes. Well, that's anointing. That's sort of doing something medical for somebody besides the healing. Strike three. So to them, they're like, hey, we found three different ways that this guy, Jesus, has violated the law. But it's not the law. It's their oral tradition that they had attached to the law to make a bunch of rules that they could feel good about keeping. It's not the real law. So now they align themselves. And ironically, as this plays out, we see people's reaction to truth. Here, the seeing in the story are blinded to truth. The people who had their sight the whole time was the Pharisees. And not only that, they claimed to see. They're the ones that said, hey, we, we get the law. We understand the law. We know what the law means. They, they see the truth. They perceive the truth. That's what they're saying. That's their claim. 
And they're missing the significance of this miracle that even the neighbors are going, whoa, this, this, this has got to be a sign from God. This guy that we've seen all these years, blind since he was born, begging on the side of the street, he's been healed. And the Pharisees who claim to know truth, who claim to see, they are blinded to the truth that's right in front of their faces. And people do this today. We get comfortable in our own lives or, or how people think around us or how we think. We get comfortable with living our life sort of without God being really involved. And then all of a sudden that starts shifting how we see God. And, and we subtly start redefining, redefining God in our own mind. And then that always comes along. We've talked about this before. That always comes along with, oh, and by the way, God's, God thinks I'm pretty doing all right. Me and God, we tight. <laughs> but that's not based on truth. That's based on how you've changed the image of God in your mind. Without really living for him. Without really following him daily. And so ironically here, the seeing are blinded to truth, but also notice that the blind is seeing truth. And that's the man we're talking about. The blind man not only receives his physical sight, but we see God here doing something spiritually inside the man. Besides that he sees, something's going on in the man's heart. Something's changing. God is changing the way the man's thinking. And we see this because this man, who has had no education, starts going toe-to-toe with the religious leaders in the city. Unheard of. He starts defending Jesus. We see it all play out because he is seeing truth, which is we see how it's changing his life as the story plays out. He starts off, verse 11, who did this to you? Well, the man, the man called Jesus did it. Then later they ask, who do you say Jesus is? Well, he, well he's got to be a prophet. And then later he argues logically, Jesus is from God or he could do nothing. And then even later, and, and he's defending Jesus. And then when the Pharisees can't answer back, they start attacking his character and they throw him out. They excommunicate him. But he stands up to the opposition. He stands up for truth. He defends Christ, even though that he knows he's ticking off the religious leaders. He doesn't care. He knows it's true. And the question for us is, do we stand up to opposition today? This, this is hard for us. Because in one sense, we live in a country where there's no real physical um, persecution or anything like that. But we also live in a country where it's kind of go with the flow and, hey, don't get too religious on me. What, what's true for you is not true. Just a bunch of garbage. Like truth is just whatever you think it is. And everybody has their own truth. And don't tread on me with, with what you think your truth might be. That's not reality. Truth is absolute. It's not subjective. Do you stand up to opposition? And, and some of you are probably going, hey, Kevin, 
Stand up. There's no, you know, there's no real opposition. I don't really know anybody. I mean, I hang out with believers. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm not around people who are trashing Jesus. Well, maybe you need to get out more. And impact the world. That's what Jesus called us to do. We're the light of the world. Maybe you need to, maybe you need to initiate some conversations. Maybe you need to, to look for openings. That's what David and I talk about all the time. You know, how to swing this conversation that way or this way when we're talking to people. We should be making an impact on people around us. We should be standing up for Christ. And please, I'm not asking for a bunch of Facebook warriors. And then we start blasting people. (laughs) When we, we should stand up for truth, but Scripture's telling us that we should do that humbly. We should do that in love. You know, maybe that calls for the private message. Have wisdom. Uh, again, not saying that you don't want to ever say anything back publicly. Maybe that will influence people. Do it gently, humbly. Be wise about how you interact with people. Influence, yes. Don't be afraid. Jump in. Influence. Make a difference. But be wise how you're doing it. Do it to win them. Not to alienate them. Then the formerly blind man, he ends up, we see all those changes, but at the end of the story, he ends up calling Jesus Lord. And that's a little tricky because Lord could mean sir, or it could mean Lord as in God. And, so, and, and I believe in this passage, although it's both translated Lord, it's the first time he says it, it's sir, and the second time he says it is Lord. But it doesn't matter because it's a slam dunk because it says he worshiped him. You see, once we discover truth, we must decide on Jesus. I love John chapter 9. I've read it many times. I know the story in my head. But just rereading it about a week ago, I noticed something that struck me. It just stood out to me. And it's verse 35. Where, that's where we left off. Where Jesus heard, so he's been put out. So now, fast forward a little bit of time. Jesus hears. Jesus is somewhere else. He's not around there. He's not a part of the arguments. And Jesus heard, oh, that guy, the blind man, they threw him out of the synagogue. He's out. So Jesus, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe? And what struck me was, Jesus takes the time out of all the stuff that's going on in Jerusalem to go find this guy. Oh, he, he's been kicked out of the synagogue because of me. And maybe that he was defending Christ. Jesus goes and finds him. This guy didn't initiate anything. He didn't ask to be healed. Jesus just healed him. He didn't ask, him, Jesus, where are you? Jesus then came back and found him and then asked him this huge question. Do you believe and some of you, we, we're, we're in kind of different groups. Some of you searched and searched and searched. And God enabled you. He gave you something inside of you that you just wanted to know truth. And you wanted to find Jesus. And then you eventually became a Christian. 
And some of you are like me, that you're just out there and somehow God found you like he found me. I wasn't really searching. I wasn't on this quest to find out what religion was true. I, I figured all that out later. I studied all that later. At the beginning, I was just, just a kid doing my own thing. And God found me. God helped me see. God opened my eyes. I had nothing to offer. In the Greek here, the Greek pronoun you, it's used with the verb, which means it has a double emphasis. He's saying, you, Jesus is saying to this person who had been blind, you, do you believe? And it demands a personal decision. The question demands it. Verse 36, and he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? So do you catch what's happening? Do you believe in the Son of Man? This is an Old Testament reference from Daniel to the Messiah. And so Jesus is saying, do you believe in him? And, and the blind man says, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him. This is new. You have both seen him, and he's the one who's talking with you. He's saying, I'm right here. Verse 38, and he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. When it says he worshipped him, this is huge. This is a Jewish man who believe in one God that nobody could see or they would die, worshiping a person standing next to him as God. Huge. To us, that doesn't mean much. First century Judaism, when this happened, this is huge. This is the first time, the only time, that the word worshiped is used to Jesus before his resurrection. One time, this guy, the blind guy, he used it. And we misunderstand the word worship. This word worship here is to fall on your face, prostrate yourself before somebody, to uh, stretch out face down in reverence. And then it came to mean to then live a life purposely submitted to God, that you would worship him implied that you would do that with your life, that your life would live oriented toward God, that every decision you made, would it be, you would have God in mind, that it, God would change the way you thought about everything. That's worshiping God. We must understand the word. And then we see the works of God were shown twice in this man's life. The works of God. Jesus said, oh, he, oh he's not blind because that is blind to the works of God. And then what are the works of God? Well, number one, he received his sight. Boom. Secondly, he's even bigger. He received eternal life. He saw the truth. He worshipped God. Jesus in the flesh. He experienced something bigger than what many of us have experienced. Because Jesus saved us. What's weird about this is in this story, in John 9, there's actually another story of a healing kind of like this. It's back in John 5. So earlier in John 5, Jesus, again, he's walking through Jerusalem, and he goes to another pool, Bethesda. 
And there's a guy who's paralyzed there next to the pool. And there was sort of a tradition that if waters rippled and you could get in there first one in, that there would be some healing powers that would last maybe for a while that you would do better. And so this guy's by this pool trying to make that happen, but he's paralyzed, so it's not working out so well. Other people with other issues get in there first, and he thinks this is the answer. And Jesus goes by him and says, hey, do you, do you want to be well? And the guy says, yeah. And then he starts going in this long explanation now, but I just can't get into the water at the right time. I really think this will help me, but everybody beats me to it. And Jesus says, get up, grab your pallet, your cushion you're sitting on, and walk. And he does. And same thing. He's, he's walking. Don't know where he's going. Maybe toward the temple because he's there later. And then the Pharisees. This is on a Sunday. This is a what we would call Sunday, they're Saturday, Sabbath day. And so they stop him and they say, whoa, what are you doing carrying your cushion? That's violating one of our traditions attached to the law. Stop it. And he says, well, the guy who healed me told me to. What do you think about that? And they say, well, who was that guy? And he says, I don't know. I don't know the guy. He, just, he didn't know who Jesus was. Then later, Jesus finds this guy. And this guy's in the temple. And then Jesus, it, it's totally different though. Jesus runs into this guy and says, hey, you need to stop sinning or something worse is going to happen. I don't know what happened between the healing and when Jesus sees him again in the temple, but it must not have been good. Somehow Jesus knows this guy has not repented. And he tells the guy, you need to stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you than you being paralyzed. You'll be in hell for an eternity. And then you know what this guy does? He doesn't say, okay, gotcha, check, I'm with you. He leaves Jesus, goes and finds the Pharisees, the enemies of Jesus, and says, hey, I found your guy. His name's Jesus. He's over there. And from that moment on, the Pharisees start persecuting Jesus for what he's doing on the Sabbath day. So you have two guys. Both end up meeting Jesus without asking for it. Jesus makes an impact on both of them. They're both healed physically. One guy becomes a follower of Christ and worships him, and before that even happens, defends Jesus one guy sort of just sells Jesus out, and then as soon as he can identify who he is, he goes to his enemy and says, hey, here's the guy. And we have no confidence that that guy became a Christian. We assume that he didn't. And here's the thing. My fear for many of us in this room is that you know who Jesus is. And in some way, he's impacted your life. But you really don't worship him with your life. Because you're really not a believer. That's my fear. for everybody that will be walking into grace today would be that you like Jesus 
and you do church, and you have a few people here that maybe you like to hang out with, but something's going to happen or your circumstance is going to change, and then a couple years from now, you won't be attending church anymore. You have drifted away from Jesus, away from grace, away from your friends who are believers. And you'll still think you're a Christian. And that, that'll just become kind of normal in your life. And then someday you'll die. And my fear is that you'll find out that you were never really knew Christ. That you were never really a believer. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 7, narrow is the gate. Few find it. And then later in that chapter, he says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. But basically saying, only those who do my will. You know, it's, it's serious stuff. And so we get this picture. Jesus is telling us, there are people who believe in him. You can't deny Christ. He lived. No serious historian denies that Jesus of Nazareth lived and profoundly impacted the world more than any other man. And some people would say, well, then he's more than a man. That's not salvation. Salvation is knowing that he's God and I will worship him with my life. So that's what we're saying. Discover truth, but don't stop there. Decide on Jesus. Oh, Kevin, I've decided, I'm good with Jesus. I prayed the prayer. How, how do you know? Because if you've decided on Jesus, you will demonstrate change. Your life will be different. You will handle money differently. You will handle your time differently. You'll be wondering, how does God want to spend my time? Your Sundays will have different priorities. I know I'm speaking to the choir here. You guys are all here. I get it. But God will start impacting your decisions. And you'll find yourself doing stuff that you would have never done. Because you're only doing it because you believe God wants you to do it. Maybe it's hard or unpleasant or difficult. It's not convenient. Or it's costly. But you do it. Because you're convinced that's what God wants you to do. We've all sinned. This is the gospel. You probably almost... Ever, this service, first service, probably almost everybody gets this. God's created us. He created us with free will. We've, we've all chosen to rebel against him. But God keeps loving us. And so even though sin has to be punished, and, and that means eternal separation from God for all of us, he loves us and makes a way by sending his one and only son, Jesus, and he comes, clothes himself in humanity, huge step down, as Philippians is telling us, and then he lives this life 
perfectly without sin and then voluntarily allows himself to be tortured to death, crucified on a cross by his own creation in order to pay the debt of our sin. But the only way that's accredited to our account is when we respond to him in faith. And, and so a lot of times, and you know, we say, hey, you can, you can call out to God in faith and, he, and, and God will save you. But faith is just, it's more than mental assent. You know, we, we, faith, trust, belief, all these words are connected in Greek, but it's more than just mentally knowing something's true. Scripture says the demons believe and tremble. It's more than that. It's that we turn to him in trust. We trust him with our life. Our life has changed because of God. And people say, Kevin, here's my question. When did you become a believer? And my guess is in this crowd on first service on Sunday morning, that about 20% of you would tend to say this, I've always been a believer. No one's always been a believer. You have not always been a believer. That's wrong. And if you're depending on I've always been a believer, that's your stake and that's the way, that's your evidence of being a Christian, you will spend eternity separated from God because nobody has always been a believer. We discover truth, even if it's spoon-fed to us by God. We decide on Jesus. It means we follow him with our life. And it shows up in our life. We demonstrate change. And we do. We deploy. We do for others. That's the evidence. And so here's my question is, this is so important. We're getting started key time in our church family. But have you demonstrated this change in your life? Has God changed you from the inside out? Are you doing things that you would have never done before you were a believer? Only because Jesus wants you to. Here's what Jesus said next. It's powerful. Verse 39, and Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, you know, you would be innocent of rejecting me right now, if you said, I don't know who you are, I don't know what to believe. But you say you see the truth. And because you say that you see and you really don't, your sin remains. You're in trouble. That's what he's telling us. He wants us all to be able to see spiritually. So as we close it out, I'd like us to bow our heads. I'm going to ask a few questions. I'm going to try to put you into a category and, and the reason our heads are bowed is 
not in reverence or anything like that. It's just I don't want to embarrass anybody. I'm just trying to get a read on our church family. I'm not going to use this to, to pound you. I just want you to figure out where you're at. So, heads bowed, four categories. Think about your relation. Examine yourselves, as Paul says. Examine yourselves and try to figure out where we're at here. So, number one, how many, you're here and you're sure of your salvation. You could think back to a specific time in your life when you changed your thinking and you started to follow Jesus and then you, can, you know of ways that God has changed your life. I mean, there's no doubt in your mind. I want you to raise your hand. Just hold it up for a sec. You know God's changed you. You see the evidence in your own life. It's not just mental belief, it's you're trusting him with every area, you're actively following him. Okay, thanks. Second, how many of you have thought you're a Christian? I mean, you come to church and you, 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 maybe you, you prayed along with me, you prayed a prayer, but, but now maybe the Holy Spirit's kind of touching your heart and you're just not sure anybody like that just hold your hand up just for a second just you're just not sure okay third category how many have come to realize that you can't really identify anything that you've changed in your life only because of God that most everything you do is because it's good for you even your morality, your, your motivation is more, this is good for me and my family. It's not, I'm doing it for God. And so you're thinking, maybe I never really understood it. Maybe I'm not a follower. But I want to correct that. That's category three. Hold your hand up if, that, if that's kind of, kind of the way you're thinking. I see you. then last category is you're sitting here and you're like hey Kevin I admit it I, I'm not a follower of Christ and I don't know that I want to be a follower of Christ and I'm just throwing this in because I don't want to force you into a category that I would want for you when in your heart you know it's something else so if that hey I'm not a believer and I'm not afraid just to admit just between you and me because I'm looking around Kevin's looking around yeah, not a believer, don't really intend to be a believer. Just put your hand up. What I'd like to do is two responses today. First, I'd like to, to lead you in a prayer of salvation. Again, it's not the words. It's not a magic phrase. It's calling on God in sincerity and putting your trust in Jesus. It's an expression of your trust in Him. It's an expression that you trust Him with every area of your life, that you want to follow Him. It's called repentance. It's, you want to come, you want to turn from your way of living, follow Him. Then I would invite you to make a prayer like this, your prayer in your own words, silently to God. Just take this time 
me lead you with some thoughts, but make it yours. It's your prayer. Father God in heaven, I know that I'm a sinner, that I've sinned against you, and that the right and just punishment for my sin, as is everybody's, is eternity separated from you. I can't whitewash it. I can't make it okay. Sin is wrong. You set the standard, not me. And I'm asking for your forgiveness. And I realize that's only possible because of what Jesus has done. Taking my place, paying my price for sin, my penalty. And God, I thank you for that. And Father, I'm putting my trust in Christ and Christ alone. And as I do that, Lord, I'm asking you to come into my life and lead me, change me, help me to put you in charge of every area of my life. Not just say I'm a Christian, live it out. Help me to live it out. And thank you for loving me. In Christ's name. If you've done that today, sincerely, as far as you know, for the first time, I, I, as our heads are bowed, I'd like to know that. That's why you put your hand up and let me see you. I know some of you raise your hand. Number two, number three. Thank you. Thanks. Just put it up where I can see it. Thanks. Put it back down. Put it up. Let me see ya. Put it down. I'd like us to stand together. Tim's going to close us in a song. And I want to stand together and I want to use this song as an invitation. Because here's the thing. I know some of you, some of us, we're sitting here and we're going, wow, I know I'm a believer, but I'm also realizing I'm God's speaking to my heart and I have drifted from Christ. I know I'm a believer, but I've drifted from Him. There's no better time to get that right than today. So Christian, if you need to respond, as, as Tim leads us in song. I invite you to come. Uh, just kneel down in front here. Get that right with God. Go back to your chair. Just whatever you do, just make sure that you reset with God this morning.